Welcome to Talking Feds, Women at the Table, a podcast that brings to the table prominent legal professionals and special guests for a lively and intellectual discussion that amplifies voices that are often unheard. I am Juliette Kayam. I'm Melissa Murray. And I'm Ann Milgram. I think because I'm the oldest here, I'll introduce you to this new podcast. It has been another crazy news week. Even right now, we're taping just an hour before Kamala Harris, our fellow woman at the table, takes the stage with VP Mike Pence. But this is also against the backdrop of President Trump's return from Walter Reed to the White House, which has over the last week become a COVID hotspot. But today we're going to dive down specifically into the revelation that surfaced on Tuesday. That story from the New York Times disclosed that the migrant policy that the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security instituted in 2018 included orders to the field and orders from the Deputy Attorney General not to take account of the ages of migrant children, even virtual newborns, that they were separating from their parents. There is so much to discuss, and so I'm going to turn to Anne next so she can introduce herself. So I have so many questions to ask you about um, some of what you just said, Juliet, and I'm thrilled to be with you and Melissa and to have this conversation. My background, I'm a Jersey girl, born and bred in central New Jersey, and I went on to Rutgers College, then to law school, and I became a prosecutor, first in the Manhattan DA's office and then at the Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division, where I specialized in human trafficking cases. After a brief stint on the Hill, I became the 57th Attorney General for the state of New Jersey, where I oversaw the law enforcement structure for the entire state, as well um, as the Division of Elections, which I actually handed off to the Secretary of State before I left. And I've been thinking a lot about elections lately, as I'm sure everyone has been. And then after leaving being AG, I joined the faculty at NYU School of Law, I was at the Arnold Foundation leading their criminal justice reform efforts for a period of time. And now I am back full time at the law school where I run the criminal justice lab and I teach seminars. And uh, I feel really fortunate that I get to talk with folks like you and Melissa. Thanks, Juliet. It's great to be here with you and Anne. Um, Let me just say a little bit about myself. I am a Florida girl. If Anne's going to rep New Jersey, I think I should rep the Sunshine State. I am a law professor at NYU, where Anne is my colleague. I teach constitutional law, criminal law, reproductive rights and justice, and family law. I can also say that, like our fellow woman at the table, Kamala Harris, I am of Jamaican and Indian descent, so I think that is very exciting. I'm also a resident, or used to be a resident, of the Bay Area, so I think Kamala and I have lots in common in that respect, although her career trajectory is definitely on a different level in mine right now. I am also moonlighting in another podcast. So maybe I'm a a kind of podcast dilettante at this point, but I'm also one of the co-hosts of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, where we talk about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. You guys, this is so great. Oh, I said you guys at a podcast with three women, but bad habits are hard to break. It is so great to be with both of you, Melissa and Anne, and to get to know you through this process. My name is Juliette Kayyem. I I am a lawyer by training, but I am not a real lawyer, as my mother likes to say. I practiced law at the Department of Justice, like Anne in the Civil Rights Division, and started a career on that trajectory. It shifted for a variety of reasons related to the 1990s and counterterrorism into the national security and counterterrorism space. And I have been on the faculty at Harvard's Kennedy School for some time. 
since 2001 uh, when I started their terrorism program before 9-11. And now I'm the faculty chair of a homeland security program and the Security and Global Health Project. Uh, in between, I have done a bunch of government stints. I was a state homeland security advisor. So that means I oversaw the National Guard and emergency management, all the things that fit into the homeland security world, and then was assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security, mostly in crisis and disaster management. I think a lot about how law impacts policy choices and policy implementation. Melissa, if it's okay if I turn to you first about sort of just describing what we know about this policy that came to be known as the, as the child separation policy. So most of what we know about this is coming from a leaked report that the New York Times reported on in their story. And it provides a more complicated account of how the family separation policy came to be. And what it shows is that there was actually far more support, indeed even encouragement, from key members of the administration in the policy of separating children, even very young children, from their parents. It had been said earlier on that There was more ambivalence, perhaps, among members of the administration about whether the separation policy was a good idea. A lot of the blame for the separation policy ultimately fell on the shoulders of Kirsten Nielsen, who was at the time the Secretary of Homeland Security. What it shows in this new report, though, is that there was widespread agreement that the separation policy was a good idea. And in fact, she was one of the few voices against it within the administration. That's one of the most incredible parts of the New York Times article that they do a show of hands vote yes. in the room <laughs> to figure out like who is with this policy. And she's the only hand that doesn't go up. And so it was so interesting to me because she was the face of it. But what the article, I think, really makes clear is that Jeff Sessions at DOJ mm-hmm. was just driving it. And Rod Rosenstein, too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and I think in some ways people are almost more surprised by Rod Rosenstein. Sessions, it also, though, this this was a little startling to me. It looks like he lied, right? I mean, I, yeah. you know, I, I hate to say it, but I have a feeling we're going to be saying that way too often about government <laughs> officials currently. But like he was asked about his role in it and he really passed the buck to Health and Human Services to DHS. Like it was just a it's not on my watch. And then you have these five U.S. attorneys being told, particularly in Texas and the border states, being told, bring those cases. Yes. And it doesn't yeah. matter that the kids are infants. That's the amazing thing I thought. I mean, just from an implementation standpoint, here's the DOJ lawyers fighting or discussing. And the, and the line in the article is not our equities, right? So their DHS's equities or HHS's health and human services, who's taking care of the children. And so from the policy side, what went wrong? So a lots went wrong. And if you look at the parallel memo that DHS is circulating at DHS, there's so many gaps about the policy challenges. There is a difference between a 14-year-old and a, and a two-month-old, obviously. But from an implementation standpoint, from the DHS standpoint, do you know what caused some of the major challenges is because uh, Customs and Border Protection had a data form in their computer. And, and so if you catch someone coming over the border, you know, is it solo, male, illegal drugs, whatever because the Obama administration had encountered unaccompanied minors. These were the 16, 17-year-old boys who were coming over. Their parents were saying, just get over because of violence and because they were basically either having to go into gangs or or getting killed. So the template, literally, this is just a basic tech 101, only had a check mark 
for unaccompanied minors. So these two-month-olds are being put in by Customs and Border Protection as unaccompanied minors. Therefore, there's no place on the damn form. Simple, simple solution that says, who the heck are the parents? And so even arguably, if you could say that the policy would have served as a deterrent and maybe stopped a mass migration, over at DHS, you're having, basically, they were not dealing with the equities that DOJ thought they were dealing with. There's obviously like an asynchrony going on between the different departments that's interesting. And I was a much younger lawyer when 9-11 happened. But one of the things that the post 9-11 world was supposed to do was make sure that there was more alignment between the different agencies. So one of the sort of most startling aspects of this reporting is that whatever alignments exist, they they certainly weren't working here, that all of the different agencies who are involved here just all seem to be talking to different people, but never coordinating with each other. And that's a problem. And then the other issue, I think, is just the way in which the administration sought to weaponize children as a deterrent mm-hmm. to illegal migration. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the most yeah. important points, because especially when you look at Sessions' comments, which are Essentially, if you don't stop the kids, if you don't take take the families and separate them, you're not going to start to disincentivize people from crossing the border, right? And so it is intentionally right. done to basically use children to try to prove a political point. And you are talking about the reporting is the first two cases that were declined by the local U.S. attorneys, which is exactly what they should have done. And what anybody in those positions should have done is say, we're not doing that. They basically were infants. And Sessions' point is, no, you do that. You do those cases. And he's doing it particularly to prove that point. And I sit on the board of Covenant House, which is the largest Uh um, shelter for homeless youth in the U.S. And they also operate in Latin America. There are kids in Honduras that are in Covenant House right now who have still never been reunited with their families. To Juliet's point, they shouldn't have done it. But then once they were going to do it, they had to do it correctly. And like, I personally feel like they should never have done it. And they've crossed a line that you should just never cross. I mean, it's what third world dictatorships do to try to teach people lessons. But like once they were going to do it, the fact that they did it so badly and so irresponsibly and literally have separated families to this day is unforgivable. Yeah. I mean, the fact that there are still these kids and they probably will never reunite for a variety of reasons. The parents likely came here because they were in hiding in their original country is just shocking. I mean, it just shocks the conscience that we did this and we did it so permanently. And I think I tell my students, like, if you can't go in front of reporters and tell them what you're doing, then don't do it. And I think one of the oddest things, which may have to do with her weakness as a secretary, the fact that she... She was an unlikely pick, let's just put it that way, not well known in the field. She was just a prodigy of General Kelly, John Kelly, the predecessor, um, and had basically aligned with him so that when he left to be chief of staff, her decision that in other reports, John Kelly told her not to do, her decision that she thought she could give a more benign face to what was happening. So therefore, she became the spokeswoman. Just talking about her and leadership, one, it was totally a failure because of the implementation challenges, let alone trying to defend it. But she's now trying to deconstruct that legacy of her reputation. I suspect by often talking about it in stories like the one that we read, where she comes off as the, oh my God, it wasn't her, it was someone else. And I think that that is also, I think that has to do both with the weakness of her as a secretary and the weakness of the department itself overall in the Trump administration, because you've just seen this, you know, you've just seen that agency basically do whatever he wants. 
One of the things I was really struck by also when I was reading it is this idea that it's not DOJ's problem, it's health and human services problem, yeah. right? It's like this sort of passing of the buck when everyone is part of the federal government. I mean, it's just this incredible lack of responsibility or coordination. And I was really struck by the fact that they didn't tell any of the agencies. They had no capacity to do what they were doing. And they just they just launched this in a way that was... It's, in my view, totally cruel and unethical, but it's also just outrageously bad government. And having worked in government, one of the things you always do is coordinate, right? Or you always try to. And there's just... The other piece is Rod Rosenstein. And like, we should talk about it because I do not understand. And I ask you ladies this question in all sincerity. How is it that he is, he's at a prominent DC law firm. He gives speeches at legal events. He's still like part of the accepted camaraderie of lawyers. So this drives me crazy. This absolutely drives me crazy. He's welcomed into the elite circles Mm -hmm. with like nary a word about any of the Conduct. Like when I, when this story was reported on Tuesday, one of the first things I thought of was that the American Law Institute, of which I am a member, which is a group of mm-hmm. you know, Me too. lawyers in like you're you're in it as well, like a group of prominent lawyers in, in every part of the legal profession. He was just elected into the membership of the ALI in July. Just elected. Just elected. I know. (laughs) I saw the piece of paper and I literally almost fell off my chair. I was like, are you, I will say this about him. And we should all know this from the fact that he was, he stayed as a U.S. attorney through a lot of administrations. He's a survivor. Right. (laughs) He's like the share of the Department of Share is so much better in my view, but yes, yeah. I'm with you on the point. But I think, like, but yeah, I mean, it's like he just survived. And you guys have probably heard some of these stories from people who are close to him from during the Mueller investigation, but I have not bought the sort of crocodile tears about, oh, it's so hard, it's so hard, and I just want to do the right thing. Well, I mean, we're in that moment right now as we're more likely than not, knock on wood, not going to jinx it, but where there will be a transition and then an unearthing of what happened and a sort of throwing under the bus of of other people. You're starting to see that now. I think it's really interesting that these three or four top people who were in the Trump White House or VP Pence's COVID coordinator or the former chief of staff to Kirsten Nielsen, all of these people and who we should welcome right now. Right. They were involved with child separation. They were involved with some pretty horrible things, but nonetheless are from the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Most of them, you don't you have some of the DOD folks coming forward, like the former head of the Coast Guard, Admiral Z, who I I know really well, had worked under Trump and has come forward for Biden. But there is going to be this sort of after the fact, like I tried to do everything I could, the sort of anonymous thing. We're going to have to figure it out. I mean, I'm definitely like some of this was criminal behavior. It's not that I'm not forgiving. It's just if it's criminal behavior, it's criminal behavior. Other parts of it is, you know, yeah, maybe be forgiving and move on. But what I find interesting right now, and it's just it is very similar to the to the Rod story, is just these damn institutions that are not asserting their equities, whether it's the Cleveland Clinic that takes the Trump family at its word uh, that he got tested and then lets the children sit there without masks, even though the rules are masking the commission on presidential debates, just letting this become an issue of personal preference between uh, Harris and Pence about whether she's going to be protected from someone by most accounts has been around 
five dozen people who are now deathly ill with COVID or close to it. Like, where the heck is Chris Christie, right? I mean, you know, we haven't heard from him in a few days either. So, well, I mean, Chris Christie, like, basically brought COVID into ABC News when he was doing his post-debate analysis. Yeah, the, the idea that institutions are acting like they don't have equities. You know, Trump wins when an institution says that they don't want something to be political. So the Commission on Presidential Debate says, oh, you know, we don't want to get involved with politics. It's COVID. It's not politics. It's health security. It's science. Yeah, I agree. It's science. But that's something that's endemic in the legal profession. They don't necessarily call it equities, but like this sort of insistence on collegiality and civility, which means that You welcome Rod Rosenstein into the ALI without thinking or talking about what has come before. And I just want to call out a woman doing really excellent work in this vein, but my colleague, Leah Lippman, who is a professor at the University of Michigan, wrote a terrific symposium paper called Lawyers' Democratic Dysfunction, which is now in the Drake Law Review, that talks about this. Like, what do we do when the elites of a particular profession like the law profession close ranks around someone that we know has done something wrong. Is that what it is? Are they doing it to protect one another and to sort of protect the inside? Like, because I cannot get my head around it. I'm with you guys on it. The Cleveland Clinic thing, it's like, are you kidding me? I mean, they know better, right? I mean, the same thing with, it was publicly reported that they were offering masks to Trump's family and they were like, no, thank you. Oh, I know. Like, no, thank you. No, thanks. Personal preference. Yeah. And it's just like, there are rules and the rules apply to everyone and the institutions and the processes are supposed to protect us, right? And so this idea that the person is the institution, which is kind of what Trump has made it, his rule is what drives, I mean, I, I want to say, though, one thing, which is that we have seen some great exceptions. We've seen some yeah, people yes. resign from DOJ. We've just seen two AUSAs yes. write pretty powerful statements saying, like, Bill Barr has corrupted the Department of Justice. The problem is there just haven't been enough of them. And even the folks who have resigned, in my view, like, they've spoken, but there's a way in which, and I get it, they're cabined on the cases. That's not entirely true. I mean, like, think about Elizabeth Strange, who is the acting U.S. attorney in Arizona, who declined to prosecute a number of those cases and basically got shut down by DOJ. So, I mean, you can resist the institution, but you're the individual and it's an institution. Well, and the right. institution itself has been co-opted. Yes. Right. That's and I think that that's the problem, right? It's not like that there aren't good people, because I think we have to say, like, look, both Juliet and I are alums of DOJ, and so many of my dear friends are still there. They're the best lawyers I've ever worked. Like, they're amazing and trying to do the right thing. And so, but they're in the midst of this this institution. And it's funny because, you know, Trump talks all the time about the deep state, like this idea. It's the opposite. So the idea is like that the departments and institutions are really run by like these career lawyers who have like their own views and they're over his ideas, like they're overruling the democratically elected political leadership of the organization. And it turns out that he's overruling. It's not a deep state. It's a shallow state. Exactly. That's what it turns out. Well, and also I just think this idea like, okay, so I'm not like in a defense CB and TSA and stuff, but I do, every once in a while, I do get my back up, like, you know, everyone hates DHS, so every once in a while, I do have to chime in. You know, this idea that the administration and these policies are sort of pro-law enforcement, pro-law and order. So all, I mean, how did this administration start? It started three days, I mean, what's this first major policy legal plan, right? It was the Muslim ban. And how did that begin? That began with no notice to Customs and Border Protection agents, no training, 
an edict that that by all accounts may not have gotten to all the fields. I know, and I may know this from the U.S. Attorney's offices, but I know here in Boston, there was a absurd and terrifying situation where the U.S. Attorney didn't know what the legal reasoning was for it, so had to ask for a delay. So you don't do any of those processes. So even arguably, if this is a policy you want, and you put these CBP agents who were described as crying and stressed out, what kind of administration continually puts that kind of pressure on its first responders, on its deep state, if that's what you want to call it. And it has, in some ways, that has, I think, radicalized in a bad way a lot of the unions. As I think of all the things that Biden, if he wins once again, you know, knock on wood, if Biden is going to have to deal with is these law enforcement unions, whether it's through you know DOJ and the FBI guys and CBP and TSA and Bureau of Prisons, will undermine any reform if they can. And so that's that's an area that I think has gotten sort of probably a little less attention. I mean, we talk a lot about police unions, but the federal law enforcement unions are are the ones who are defending these policies, even as their members don't know what the heck to do or don't want to do it. I can't believe, I mean, on the law enforcement thing, like, I cannot believe that the president has been so successful as making himself appear as though he were a law and order person. Nothing could be further from the truth. He is literally undercut the rule of law at every opportunity he has. He's basically dismissed the case or trying to dismiss the case against Michael Flynn. And I think it's that he's just framed it in a way that really appeals to this this idea of sort of you want safe communities, people are attacking police officers. The reality is that even this idea that there has to be a choice between equity and safety, there is no choice. You need both. But again, he's framed it and he's put this wedge in, in a way that has just appealed to the unions. And what is the real argument? No police officer should ever be fired for misconduct. Like, where does it end? It's, I mean, it's, it's stripped right out of the 1968 Republican National Convention in Miami playbook, where Nixon made exactly the same appeal under similar circumstances when the country was literally in flames in the summer of 1968, after Martin Luther King's assassination, after Robert Kennedy's assassination. And you're right, Anne, like he is not a law and order president. He doesn't care about law and order. He doesn't care about institutions at all. But this is an appeal that, for his purposes, has a really great foil, these very public protests that really, I think, shook the country this summer and really called attention to not just, I think, the class inequality that has been exacerbated over the course of the last four years, but just all of the other kinds of inequality that we have seen. What happens is, all of our politics are different too, you know, but you know, what happens is then because of that insanity, the response ends up arguably being not wrong, whether it's abolish police or whatever, you know, the original version of that was abolish ICE or decriminalize crossing the border, which was eight of 10 Democratic candidates who were wanted to be president were for it. And I think I, I actually think Biden sort of half raised his hand. So I think he sort of knew maybe I'll get the nomination. But it puts the Democrats in a position which we, we often have to fight, which is, or at least from my perspective, these are issues that we don't like a lot. I mean, border enforcement is hell and why people come here is hell. But we have rules and we have rules about why people can come here and asylum rules and we have enforcement rules and lots of presidents have done it better with 
once again, to the effectiveness argument with better border controls than we have now. I mean, this is, the, of course, the irony that no one talks about is during the child separation time, things just kept getting worse, right? I mean, in terms of mass migration. So it wasn't serving as a deterrent. And also crime along the border. Like they were so busy separating families, they weren't actually policing and enforcing the criminal laws at the border. Yeah, So one of the challenges I also think in terms of the sort of righting the wrongs is, I mean, we all, some level of enforcement in all of our backgrounds, right, is that how do you now keep enforcement? It is illegal to cross the border. We don't want to prosecute anyone, but maybe we want to reserve the right to prosecute if someone really bad does come over or immigration and customs enforcement. That's like really hard stuff. But on the other hand, if someone is in the country, doesn't default make them eligible to stay in the country if they're in, if they're here unlawfully. Those kind of enforcement issues, because I think the reaction to enforcement, the kind of enforcement Trump has been doing, is one that's going to take a really sophisticated department attorney general to figure out how do I how do I continue with important law enforcement roles We criminalize border, we can debate it, but whatever you call it, if you abolish DHS, if you abolish ICE, whatever you call it, you're still going to have to have an enforcement mechanism or a border patrol. You could call it whatever you want. And that, I think, is going to be a huge challenge because even me, who tends to be sort of more moderate on these issues... I find myself, you know, sort of, you know, agreeing. Yeah, you're reacting to him, right? Yeah, because he's so extreme, everyone. I'm just reacting to him. Oh, it's just horrible, yeah. To Juliet's point, though, about enforcement, one of the things that he's done that I don't think gets enough attention is that he's broken down the institutions of enforcement, as Juliet says. They have to be rebuilt. But while he's sort of dismantled them, He's also empowered private citizens to act as sort of deputized enforcement mechanisms themselves. And like whether that's at the border or at polls, at elections where he's calling for his supporters to police the polls. Exactly. And look, I mean, I, I had a conversation right after the sort of defund the policing movement started with someone who called me and said, like, look, you've run a police department. Here's my concern. Right. And it was a super progressive person who said, all I can imagine is you take the police out of my neighborhood and the people who own guns in the United States of America mm-hmm. are all of a sudden out there yeah. trying to like break up fights and shooting people and and stop people who are engaged in crime. It is that extreme it's that extreme version. But look, this is where where Trump has been effective and I don't say it with any I, I don't <laughs> say it with any praise whatsoever. He has framed the issues. And to the extent he even somehow he succeeded in taking what were overwhelmingly peaceful protests for Black Lives Matter and framing them as riots and sort of like everything he does, he turns it and then he sort of that's his stepping off point. And then the Democrats or others are reacting to that. And it really is there needs to be a reframing of a lot of these issues. And again, it's like, why would you choose between equity and safety? You need both. And why do you think you can't have both? Well, there's such an opportunity right here with the COVID response and the fact that the White House is apparently a hot spot or a Petri dish of COVID. That's the law and order problem. And you were talking earlier about sort of this lack of coordination. I mean, this is, you know, this has been his attitude towards COVID from the beginning. I mean, I, I write commentary for The Atlantic and one of my first columns, it started with the line, we are about to find out whether the Articles of Confederation would have worked, right? Because his whole thing is, you know, states, states. But I, I do, I do want to say something that that does give me hope, and I think I don't think it's going to be easy. And and this gets to the point about Rod and why are these columns coming? Are these articles coming out now and stuff? Is 
in my world in counterterrorism or radicalization, why does something happen? Why do people get, you know, there's lots of reasons about the rise of white supremacy, not all of them related to Trump and, you know, displacement theory, these social media platforms, but a igniting force in this time is the lack of shame that permeates the highest levels of government, let alone like white nationalists or white supremacists or whatever, right? Like that's promoted by the president. So, I mean, you think like the attorney general, Rod, or whoever, you know, you're sitting in a room. The idea that I'm going to have to tell my kids about this, like, right, you know, I mean, where's the shame anymore? And I believe that this election is an election to bring shame back to America. And I can't wait. <laughs> Make America shameful. <laughs> Make America shame again. Ma. Yes. <laughs> I think Masa. That's Masa, right? Make America shamed again. I'm not shamed. It's just Ma, like your mom. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. I cannot wait. I literally cannot wait because a lot of this stuff, and this is why I'm not so worried. I mean, I'm worried about white supremacy. If Biden wins, I think it'll be bad during the transition, but it will run out of ox. I mean, it will, it will, ideologies do not die. Nazism didn't die. They, they, they can't be legislated away, uh, but they get shamed. And I cannot wait. I promise you. And this story about child separation, which we started so long ago, goes to that, which is people sitting in a room and maybe both of your points about are they allowed back into our communities? Maybe we just make them feel ashamed and say, no, you know what? You can't go down that path. This has nothing to do about whether you're a good lawyer or whether that was the right thing or whether you could justify it under this court case or that court case. Like, you know what? Like, you should be ashamed. And as an institution, this is our way of essentially shaming you. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to overly, overly simplify it, but I don't know if either of you saw the play Avenue Q, the puppets on Broadway. Usually Melissa, she's good for the cultural references, but there's this little thing that happens where guys try to make a decision. Should he stay out at night or should he go home and go to bed? Right. He's got an exam or a job interview. I can't remember the next day. I saw it many years ago. And there are good idea bears and bad idea bears. And the good idea bears are like, you should go home. You should do well tomorrow. And the bad ideas are like, stay out, have another drink. It's a great time. And it's like America, like everyone teeters on this. Do presidents and do people appeal to your better angels or does it stoke fear and division? And I think the idea of shame is like a fundamental idea of it's not OK to do certain things that are happening. And what's amazing to me about Trump is that in the world of like most politicians are poker players. You don't see their yeah. hand. You don't know exactly what's happening. They keep things close to their vest. They're almost like. I don't want to say savvy because it's sleazy sometimes. Trump is a chess player. Like he shows yeah. you virtually every single move and he's taken shame away because he's so shameless. shameless. He's shameless. He's shameless. shameless. Yeah. He's shameless. And that's basically what it comes back to that like we're living in this world where it's like also hard to fight because he's so brazen and he's so just without any sort of empathy or humanity in many ways. Yeah. Do you guys want to take bets on when Donald Trump's, as we end this, when was the last test before it was positive? And I am putting it because you know how they keep saying regularly as if that meant frequently. It does not mean frequently. As someone said to me, so Haley's comment is regular, you know, every, every, every 80 years. You know? So I'm putting it I'm putting it mid-September. I am guessing that man did not have a test for like two weeks. Are you kidding? Yeah. He, he, but this is to your point, Anne, 
He tells us this. Like, if you actually go back, he says, tests are overrated. You, you get too many positives. I really don't like tests. Uh, and then he says, I'm the most tested person in America. And I mean, we now know that they were lying about the dailies. Why should we even think that it was weekly? So let me ask you guys this question. Just think about institutions for a minute. Any of us work in the White House, Hope Hicks test positive. You would not let the man walk out the door. You would test him immediately, right? I mean, first of all, you'd be testing him every day. There's a protocol that you would put in place and a process you would follow. But even if that didn't exist, it is impossible to me to think about the breakdown of the institution itself that after Hope Hicks, he even walks out that door. Well, I mean, I, I think you saw the breakdown when he walked out of Walter Reed to take a joyride in The Beast, with, which is basically a hot box of COVID because it's hermetically sealed. I mean, what institutions exist if you are willing to put your employees, civil servants who don't have the same kind of health care mm-hmm. in, in jeopardy in that way? I mean, like... This is sort of Louis the Fourteenth, like Versailles kind of stuff, like l'état c'est moi. Right before we came on to tape this, I think that they were reporting that Creed Bailey, who is the head of White House security, has been hospitalized since late September. That's the, that's the person who interacts between the security of letting you in and the Secret Service and the president. So as as I said again, mid-September. So I'm, I'm putting it September. This will come out. It will come out. It will come out. September 20th. I'm going to pick a random date. I was guessing last Wednesday, and I'm. it might not be right, but when the doctor was like... They're too optimistic. Oh, Anne, you're so sweet. Too optimistic. Oh, when the doctor <laughs> like 72 hours. So look, he's also the doctor then is, I mean, we already know from his performance over the weekend that he is not truthful or not, you know, at one with the truth, but it will be astonishing. And and look, some of the stuff, like, I can't even believe it. Like, I can't believe we have to have this conversation where we're guessing. Yeah. Where where are you, Melissa? What's your, what's your date? I mean, so Juliet says the 20th, I'm going to say the 22nd. Ooh, okay. And maybe it's earlier. This is like one of those games you play with your kids where whoever's closest. Yeah. Okay. But listeners, yeah, exactly. But listeners didn't get to hear our pre-taping discussion about the George Foreman grill, which we'll bring up later <laughs> in another episode. And the Instant Pot, which will <laughs> definitely burn your face off. I mean, exactly. Right. We're going to have a big debate. Thanks, everyone, for listening to our very first episode of Women at the Table. Next week, we'll be back with some interesting guests and more conversation. We're all on Twitter, so please follow us and send us any questions or ideas you have for guests or topics. And you can send that to at TF underscore W-A-T-T. And please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you liked what you heard. And thanks also to our producer, Jennifer Bassett, and Harry Littman of our cousin podcast, Talking Feds. And thanks to our editor, Justin Wright, and our consulting producer, Andrea Carla Michaels. See you next time.